Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Hey, everyone. My name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here at Blue Oaks. We spent the last three weeks looking at core beliefs that are the most transformational in a Christ-centered life. And today we're looking at identity in Christ. Everyone has an identity. It's how we define ourselves based on what we believe about who we are and what our value is. How we determine our identity impacts the way we experience life. Identity is a big deal. You might feel an immediate tension uh, rising as you hear the word identity because you've been told who you were supposed to be since a young age by your parents or culture or society as a whole. You've heard the voices which, which say things like, you're not good enough, smart enough, attractive enough, skinny enough, rich enough, athletic enough, successful enough, spiritual enough. You're simply not enough. The words of others have powerful impact in shaping our identity. We also form identities from how we see ourselves. It could be family focused. I'm a parent. I'm the baby of the family or the black sheep of the family. Or what you do. I'm the CEO or a soccer mom. Maybe it's your present circumstance. I'm a student. I'm unemployed or undocumented. The past can be an identifier. I'm a cancer survivor or I'm divorced. You might find yourself in the growing population of those questioning the identity or the social constructs you were brought up in. It's known as the deconstruction of an identity handed to you to find the identity of your choosing. Theorist Eric Erickson coined the term identity crisis and believed it was one of the most important conflicts people can face in personal development. According to Erickson, an identity crisis is a time of intensive analysis and exploration of different ways of looking at yourself. Now, whether it's negative or positive, external voices or internal struggles, it's influential on our identity. Everything we say and do flows from a belief of who we are. Have you ever tried to change a belief? Beliefs are like habits. They're deeply ingrained and require almost no thought. Our minds are designed to be occupied, one idea after another. So when we try to stop thinking or believing something, we create a gap and our minds want to fill it with something else. The average number of thoughts in a day is 50,000. That's 2,100 per hour. Only 10% of those thoughts are new each day. 90% are recycled. With a pattern like that, it's easy to see how false beliefs can become deeply ingrained in our minds and establish what we believe about our identity. We can see why it's essential that we define a core belief of identity in order to change false beliefs that we may have bought into. Now, the first time the concept of identity is found in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is at the very beginning. 
Genesis chapter 1, which describes the very beginning. It's the creation narrative. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Humanity was created in the image of a creator. The Hebrew word means likeness or representation. In the book, In His Image, Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey write, the word image is familiar to us today, but the meaning of the word has leaked away so that now it suggests virtually the opposite of its former meaning of likeness. Today, a politician hires an image maker. A job applicant dresses for image. A corporation seeks the right image. In all these usages, they write, image has come to mean the illusion of what something is presented to be, rather than the essence of what it really is. You see, we were created as image bearers of our creator God, designed with an imprinted identity of God. Here's a great Latin theological term for it the imago Dei. We were created with a nature to consciously display God's greatness and his beauty and his worth through the unique and varied personalities, talents, and gifts he designed into each of us. Being in God's image means that we share, though imperfectly and finitely, in God's attributes of life, personality, truth, wisdom, love, holiness, justice. It's a spiritual, intellectual, moral likeness to God from whom our very life and breath came. Now this means that everybody, regardless of their race or ethnicity, has intrinsic value and worth as the Imago Dei. Now here's what's interesting. The word is also translated as idol. In the book of Genesis, image is used of humanity created in God's image. But through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, it refers to a created idol, something used to worship other gods. The talk of images is, is negative, related to idolatry and to false worship. One commentator on the Hebrew language says, we should see this juxtaposition as intentional. A point is being made. The temptation in the Garden of Eden story that led to sin becoming part of the human experience was to redefine good and evil based on our heart's desire and the voice in our heads rather than on what God said was good and evil. In essence, to seize autonomy from God and to be our own God, an idol. We were meant to reflect God to be God's image, making God's character manifest to the world around us. Idolatry inverts our purpose as reflectors of God by creating something that reflects us and our desires as a replacement of the God we should be imaging. It's a shift from image to idol. 
That shift has led to systems of thought like moral relativism, that there is no creator and no creation, no sacred order in the language of philosophy to align your mind and body to, no design or intent in the universe from a loving creator God who created you for a loving personal relationship with him. It's just survival of the fittest. It's been said that moral relativism is the first step toward a kind of moral anarchy, as each person is free to decide good and evil for themselves. Many now live by a moral code that, in a simplified way, basically says, follow your heart. Your inner intuitions, feelings, and desires will guide you to a happy life. You do you. Be true to yourself. The problem with following your heart is the assumption that your heart is an accurate and trustworthy barometer of truth apart from God's image. Is it any surprise that the culture, the kingdom of this world, our spiritual enemy wants to distort your identity? No, you have an enemy that is actively working against you. Now, I'm not talking about the neighbor you can't get along with or the coworker that seems out to get you. Do not be looking at your spouse or partner right now, not who I'm referring to. It's not the other political party or some conspiracy theory. The Bible refers to our enemy as the adversary or the accuser. The most common name we know or hear is Satan. He shows up on page two of human history in the Garden of Eden and begins twisting God's truth into a lie. And he hasn't stopped since. He's the inspiration for the shift from image to idol in our hearts. This is why it's so important to understand and know the foundation of our identity. The foundation is not philosophical, sociological, relative, or even religious. The foundation of identity is innate in our design by a loving, personal creator God. John, who is one of the first followers of Jesus, wrote an account of Jesus' life so that we would believe in Jesus as the Son of God and as a result, discover the fullness of life in him. Listen to how he begins his book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jumping over thousands of years of human history, John takes us back to the beginning we read in Genesis, to our beginning. He echoes words from the creation story. He says the word was present with God from the start. The word was God. An identity of this word begins to be revealed. He was involved in the creative act, bringing life. And that life is a light that shines in the darkness of a world that has shifted from image to idol. A light has come to reclaim the loss of identity. John continues in chapter 1 to tell us that the word became flesh, lived and walked among us, full of grace and truth. The word 
is Jesus. He is the light that exposes the darkness of the idol a broken, sinful human nature has made of itself and restores our identity in him. John tells us that to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Birth is a beginning, and John shows us that the story of the shift from identity to idol is now the story of a new creation, a rebirth, and the renewal of our identity as children of God. The Apostle Paul, who apart from Jesus is probably the most influential early church leader, would later use the phrase, in Christ. The most common way Christ followers in the New Testament are referred to is not as Christians. By far, the most common phrase is people who are in Christ. When you decided to follow Jesus, you were united with him. You are one with him. Listen to some of what Paul says in different letters he wrote concerning our renewed identity in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. In another, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. One more. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now this should give us a fantastic amount of confidence in living a Christ-centered life. It's lived in Christ. Throughout the New Testament, we see that our union with Jesus means that who we really are, our most authentic identity is in Christ. Listen, you will never be more your true self than when you are pursuing Jesus and leaning into a Christ-centered life. So how does laying the foundation of our identity in Christ impact and influence the internal dialogue common to all of us? We'll look at that next. The shift from image to idol began a struggle within the core of human nature, a struggle uh, we continue to face today with internal and external voices telling us who we should be. And the reality is that struggle will continue throughout this life, even for the most spiritually mature among us, which is why we need to develop spiritual practices in our life that keep us centered on Jesus and our identity in him. Uh, there are certain spiritual practices that allow us to uh, remove something from our lives in order to gain spiritual renewal. Uh, these are called practices of abstinence. Uh, for example, we abstain from busyness in order to find rest for our souls. Uh, we stop talking for a while in order to hear from God. 
Uh, we give up buying another material possession to experience God more fully. Some of the most common practices of abstinence are solitude, which is about finding a quiet space to be alone with God, or uh, silence, which is about removing noisy distractions in order to hear from God, or fasting, which is about skipping a meal to find greater nourishment from God. There are many other practices of abstinence that are designed to help us root ourselves in the truth about who we are in Jesus Christ. There are also practices of engagement that are designed to strengthen us for the road ahead. Uh, Some examples are study, which is about reading scripture and reflecting on its meaning and importance for your life. Uh, We find nourishment from studying scripture. It's our source of spiritual strength. Uh, Worship, which is about offering adoration to God. Uh, Prayer, which is about talking to and listening to God or confession, which is about confessing your sins to God and and maybe to a trusted friend or a mentor. There are many other practices of engagement. Uh, Practices of abstinence and practices of engagement are ways to keep our identity where it belongs, in Christ. I want to encourage you to identify the spiritual practices that are especially important for your growth and devote yourself to them and allow each one to be a training exercise for your spiritual growth. If you'd like to know more about spiritual practices, uh, send me an email at matt at blueoakschurch.org. I'd love to help you uh, however I can. All right, let's rejoin Scott now and discover how we can live in this reality that our identity is in Christ. The transformation to our identity in Christ results from actively engaging our minds to recognize and reject false beliefs and replace them with truth. The Apostle Paul encourages us to not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to discover the the false beliefs deep inside us, the ones we may not even be aware of. That's where the work is, and it can be challenging work. Psychologists have identified three questions that influence our identity, three internal dialogues. And I want us to look at each as they relate to our identity in Christ. The first question is, am I loved? Everyone has a desire to be loved. Research has shown it could be considered one of our most basic needs. And by loved, I don't mean exclusively romantic love. Everyone has an innate desire to feel loved and cared about by someone else. But the shift from image to idol corrupted the experience of love. It became far too elusive or abusive even. It became more about the love of self, which ironically in the absence of being loved, becomes elusive also. Once you're left with the lack of love, the loss of love, or the failure of love, You're left with the question, am I lovable? Does anyone care, honestly, authentically care about me and love me? It leaves you longing for the unconditional, endless love of your creator, God. Listen to the words of Paul. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sacrifice is probably the greatest demonstration of love because it costs something. Jesus willingly putting himself on the cross to be crucified for your sin, for my sin, is the ultimate demonstration of love. And Paul had an unshakable confidence in the love of God. Listen to what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be loved by God is more profound, indescribable love than we could ever experience with another whether it be a spouse, your family, or the closest of friends. And he desires for you to know it personally and be confident in it. Stop trying to convince yourself that you are lovable and rest in the fact that you are loved. The second question is, am I significant? Steve Jobs once quoted as saying he wanted to put a ding in the universe when facing his death confessed. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives. He had begun to wonder that if death was just an off switch, where was the significance in life? Philosophers have wrestled through the ages with the question that there has to be more significance to life than a temporary existence. Author and pastor Tim Keller said it this way, It is the sense that we are more and life is more than what we can see in the material world. The value, meaning, purpose, the significance of our life is designed into our identity. It's for God's glory. Paul once again says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Just a few verses later, he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Listen, your significance is found in God's purpose for your life. His purpose may leave your names in the history book, and speakers may quote you in their talks one day. Or you may live out your purpose in obscurity. Each is equally significant in the eyes of God. When we don't find our significance in him, and instead we, we find it in other things that may, can, and sometimes do look very satisfying in the short run, we're left wondering at the end if that's all there was. Lastly, do I belong? Having a sense of belonging is essential. We are members of families, teams, small groups, political parties, communities, just to name a few. 
Nearly every aspect of our lives is organized around belonging to something. No matter who you are, something inside you longs to belong. Is it no wonder then that not belonging is one of our biggest fears? Do you remember John's words from earlier? Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God? Theologian J.I. Packer said, if you want to judge how well someone understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as father. Why? Because to be in a family is to belong. Now, maybe that's not been true for you. Your family of origin was fractured, dysfunctional, or abusive. For that, God's heart breaks because that was never meant to be before the switch from identity to idol. And brokenness entered into the human experience. But when you said yes to Jesus and placed your identity in Christ, you were adopted into God's family and given a seat at the family table where family belongs. Paul once more says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. It's the claim of God in our lives that we belong to him and with him. I read something this week that, that puts this to words so beautifully, that we do not belong to the things that we often allow to become our identity. Listen to this. To the prisoner, it means that you do not belong to the bars and chains around you. You belong to God. To the addicted, it means you do not belong to that thing which you crave. You belong to God. To the dying, it means you do not belong to this body or to that cancer. You belong to God. To the patriot, means you do not belong to this nation. You belong to God. To the debtor, it means you do not belong to any bank or credit card company. You belong to God. To the empty and overworked, it means you do not belong to your company. You belong to God. To the depressed, it means you do not belong to this sadness. You belong to God. To the abused, it means you do not belong to the person or the memories that hurt you. You belong to God. So, as we end, I want to leave you with some questions to consider this week and talk through with someone you trust. First, what or who are you allowing to define your identity? What are the internal or external voices telling you who you are? What are the voices you're listening to? And do those voices line up with the image you were created with? Second, where have you allowed your identity to switch from image to idol? Are you willing to be honest and humble with God and his work in your life to switch it back? Lastly, what false identity beliefs can you recognize, reject, and replace with God's truth? Does the desire to be loved have you chasing one relationship after another? 
Is the longing for significance leaving you empty even as you climb the corporate ladder? Have you embraced the truth that the God who created you in his image has claimed you as his own? Let's pray. Lord, my prayer for, for all of us, every person watching this right now, is that we would find the truth of our identity in you. That we would be uh, that likeness of you, Lord, to the world around us, to, to those that in our sphere of influence and that we have contact with, Lord. That the truth of who you are would be true in our lives and through our lives. Give us the courage to, to reject the words of this world that want to make that switch inside of us. That we would reject the thoughts that want to make life all about us. And that we would find our, our, our likeness in who you are, our identity in Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.